0: How do we engage with other cultures? How does the exchange of people address violent extremism? How can cities become players on the world stage? I'm Madison Jones, and this is the Public Diplocast. Sponsored by the USC Center on Public Diplomacy, this is episode five, Foggy Bottom Engaging the World. We have discussed the definition of public diplomacy, which aims to engage and influence foreign audiences to advance foreign policy goals. But there are many types of players here in the United States who actually practice public diplomacy. Of course, one of the biggest practitioners we all know is the State Department. Many of us see the general diplomatic work being done by the State Department. Our secretaries of state often travel the world to meet with foreign dignitaries and discuss things like trade deals, peace agreements, climate change agreements, and more. But what about public diplomacy? What does the State Department do to engage with foreign publics? And how much money are we allocating to this field? Why is public diplomacy even important? Joining us today is Sean Powers, the Executive Director of the United States Advisory Commission on Public Diplomacy. He has a PhD from the USC Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism at the University of Southern California, and more than a decade of experience working at the nexus of public diplomacy, development, and national security. In 2015, Sean authored, with Michael Jablonski, the award-winning The Real Cyber War, the Political Economy of Internet Freedom. Basically, he's a public diplomacy guru and an all-around awesome guy, which I know from my time working with him at the Advisory Commission. Thanks for joining us today, Sean. Thanks, Madison. It's good to
1: good to talk to you again.
0: I'd like to ask you what originally drew you to the field.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a good question. Um, and, and first, I just want to say thanks for, for having me on. I think this is a wonderful project, as I mentioned to you. I I've been sort of thinking maybe closer to dreaming of doing my own podcast at some point. I'm a big fan of podcasts, and so I'm just thrilled that you've taken this on, and, and I can't wait to hear them all. But so PD, um, you know, my roots, of course, in public diplomacy go straight back to the University of Southern California at the Annenberg School, where I was a PhD student just over 10 years ago, and I've always been drawn to the intersection of international relations and separately technology and, and kind of more specifically communication technology and as i started to hone in on my academic interests, i would always come back to those two areas and and where they intersect to a large extent is actually public diplomacy i mean the history of the field is, is a long story of of the emergence and integration of technology and technological communication tools into geopolitical endeavors you Think about the cold war and the use of radio to try to, to fight and win an ideological battle for the hearts and minds. Of course, fast forward to today, and, and we're using a many different iterations of technologies, but, but the idea is the, same. So the integration of technology into geopolitical contests is something I've been deeply interested in. As an academic, you approach these questions from a research perspective. How can I research them and, and sort of contribute to a conversation of theory building that would hopefully better describe how these processes work in a kind of neutral and objective way? Sense. And as I started going down that road, I realized that you have to be pretty close to the practitioners to understand uh, the constraints and the opportunities that they're facing. So If you really want your work to be relevant, you have to be able to understand how these trends and technologies and uh, constraints um, shape their day-to-day work. And so that, that sort of drew me to... My current position at the Advisory Commission on Public Diplomacy, where I still have my, my academic frame of mind, but I'm much closer to the day-to-day operational details of how U.S. government public diplomacy programs operate and, and, and the constraints, of course, that they're facing on a, a daily basis.
0: So speaking of practitioners, in this podcast, we've discussed both state and non-state actors engaging in PD. So through your work, can you tell us a little bit about what kinds of PD programs the State Department supports? and maybe your opinion of some of the most successful programs.
1: Sure, happy to. It, um, I think w- one of the big big challenges when I joined the commission in November of 2016 was just getting my head around all the different pockets of public diplomacy at the State Department. It's not entirely straightforward, uh, and so it's, a, it's actually a really good question. So for us, at it, the State Department, public diplomacy falls into several buckets. The first and, and one of the biggest buckets is Exchange and cultural preservation programs. This includes things like the Fulbright Program, but also spending to help restore or preserve cultural artifacts in foreign countries. Uh, A second bucket is digital diplomacy and digital outreach. This includes kind of our day-to-day digital presence on social media, our websites that are in local languages so that folks can find information on visas, find information on our, our policies, find information on our culture. Um, but they also include strategic communication campaigns that can be tied to a particular issue, the Olympics, for example, uh, or events. Uh, the third bucket that I should mention is public affairs, which is kind of a more traditional communications operation. And this helps connect the department's leaders uh, with American and foreign media, making sure that our, our messages, our policies are actually getting communicated and reflected properly into local press around the world, also in, in inside the American press. And then the final thing I should mention is just – and this is where a lot of the public diplomacy activity takes place that we don't see – is in at the embassy level, tens of thousands of grants are given each year by the public affairs section of each of our embassies. to local organizations, local groups that partner on small projects to expose corruption or to, to sponsor a new exchange program or to fight for, for women's empowerment or for entrepreneurship skills, and, and in, in connection to those – sections, we also have several hundred American spaces. These are dedicated physical hubs for connectivity, innovation, and education where American diplomats can bring together local groups, local leaders, uh, local youth, and discuss any number of issues that are are, uh, relevant to them. These spaces typically have great Wi-Fi, some interesting kind of technological innovations. A lot of them have 3D printers. We will host classes on how to do 3D printing and, and you know, trying to really uh, build local capacity and, and skills with audiences and at the same time teach them a little bit about kind of the American entrepreneurial spirit. So that's to give you a full 360 perspective on how P- public diplomacy kind of comes from the State Department. To, to answer your question in terms of successes, as if you kind of think about the scope of what I just outlined, there's a lot of successes and, and a lot to be proud of, and a lot of it doesn't really make the, the front page of the New York Times in large part because the successes happen abroad mostly, and, and often we don't really know about it until far after the program has been implemented. The impact of these programs, um, while to a large extent is measurable, is not measurable in the immediate sense. But I will just kind of point out a few things. You know, we last year we created over 2,000 weekly hours of original media content in over 61 languages that reached over 300 million people around the world. The Educational and Cultural Exchanges Bureau sponsored 75 different exchange programs that supported over 55,000 exchange participants, both foreign and American, uh, a number of whom are likely to go on to be local leaders, either in their, their own community or at the federal or national level. We also supported over 650 American spaces. Those are those innovation hubs that I mentioned um, that really are are a crucial space for youth in countries where the internet may not be free, or it may be very costly, and they can go to the American space and actually access the web for free uh, for as long as they want and not have to worry about using their, their cell phone data or, or having that connection uh, throttled by the, the local government. And in addition, you know, we just the day-to-day stuff is really important, too, supporting over 260 different embassy and consulate websites, making sure they're updated and, and current. I know that's not a, a sexy public diplomacy win, but making sure that people have access to accurate information about the United States uh, and its policies is actually, it's, it's part of the job that we do that's really underappreciated because if those websites went away, there'd be a lot more questions and a lot more anxiety about what, what the United States is up to, in particular, people that want to travel here, how they would go about doing that. So it's, it, the successes are, are abroad, but I think it's important to point out how they they reach into a, a number of different pockets around the world.
0: So you just mentioned a lot of programs that we do in PD, American spaces, grants, exchanges. We all know these cost money. Um, and as you know, there's a lot of discussion right now about the budget and reorganization of the State Department. Can you share what you think are the most compelling reasons for continued or even greater funding levels for public diplomacy?
1: It's a great question, Madison. Uh, as I mentioned, I joined the Advisory Commission in November 2016 when we We were all – everyone in government was asked to kind of think carefully about their budget and if it was the right amount of money. And and I approached it from an academic perspective, which is to say, what is the right amount of money that any government should be spending on public diplomacy activities? Where does that fit into the overall budget, and is that kind of an equivalent? If public diplomacy is a key priority in terms of our our foreign policy goals, is is that value reflected in the budget? And so – I took that perspective and asked a couple of questions about how we invested in public diplomacy historically, how do we invest in public diplomacy as a piece of our national security strategy compared to other pieces of the national security strategy, and how are we investing in public diplomacy when compared to how other governments are investing in public diplomacy. And on each of those metrics, the U.S. government was underinvesting by a substantial margin. From the historical perspective, we spent fewer dollars when adjusted for inflation on public diplomacy in 2016 than we did 30 years earlier in 1986. That seems crazy to me, especially given that the number of people that we're trying to reach in 2016 and 2018 today far exceeds the number of people we are trying to engage with in 1986. And so it's not just that the budget has gone down when adjusted for inflation, but it's also that the amount of money we can commit to trying to engage with foreign citizens goes down at a greater magnitude because we're trying to reach a larger number of people in a larger number of countries around the world. When you look at the public diplomacy budget compared to the other tools in the toolkit for pursuing American national security interests, uh, public diplomacy is is literally a sliver of the budget. It's 0.17% of the federal budget and just 3.6% of our total investment in international affairs. But I think more to the point, the entire public diplomacy budget is the equivalent of a single B-2 bomber, about $2 billion. And so when you think about how much uh, we achieve with a single B-2 bomber, which may not even fly a single mission in a decade, and how much we achieve in, in the equivalent $2 billion that we invest in public diplomacy programming each year. For me, the return on investment is far greater when you look at the public diplomacy component. And of course, that can scale far up if we increase that investment in very smart ways. The third metric that I, I looked at was comparatively we're looking at other governments. And I think this is one of the metrics that's most terrifying if, if you think about it from an American perspective security perspective. China, we think, because we don't know precise numbers, but we think that China spends about $10 billion a year on public diplomacy activities. That would be five times more than we do. Russia is also investing heavily and intelligently in its public diplomacy activities. Precise numbers are, are not public, but we know it's substantial. And And the thing about those two countries, Russia and China, is that they're very active geopolitically, and they have got International interests that aren't always aligned with ours, and so we we have to be concerned that their growing investment in the public diplomacy space and the competition for ideas and, and people's hearts and minds that their investment in that space requires us to scale up if we want to be competitive and remain relevant to the lives of the foreign citizens that we depend on to help us achieve our national security goals. Now, all of that said, I'm not a proponent of just throwing more money at public diplomacy. I think Uh, Far too often that has been what is is taking place, and there's not nearly enough accountability for making sure that these dollars are spent in ways that are meaningful and impactful. And we have to do a better job of demonstrating the value of these programs. That's something the commission is working on on a daily basis, working closely with my colleagues at the State Department. But aside from that, I think it's very clear to to the commission that increased resourcing of public diplomacy is is essential If the United States.
0: you think a big problem is that a lot of people don't actually understand what public diplomacy is, or the benefits that it can have to say, countering violent extremism or, you know, increasing women's rights around the world? Is it just a, a lack of knowledge or a lack of understanding?
1: There's certainly that component of it, but I I think that there are a number of Americans who are far less concerned with those issues uh, or international issues as as are the folks at the State Department, right? So there's just uh, it's not just a, I guess I'm trying to say it's not just a public diplomacy issue. I think that we as the U.S. government need to, need to do a better job of talking to American citizens about the importance of international affairs and what's going on in other countries because those changes, those policies and those individuals, those companies have tremendous uh, consequences for the American economy and for our, our future well-being. That connection, I think, is often missing. And, and I completely understand why uh, international news doesn't necessarily translate into impacting someone's life on a daily basis in the vast majority of circumstances. And so how do we help people understand the significance of global events and and how information can shape those events in ways that help them support or encourage them to support important programs in the public diplomacy family is a challenge, but I, I, don't, I don't think it's insurmountable. I think that there are a lot of people that are interested in these issues, and it just takes a little more mobilization, a little more time, and some more frank conversations about about where U.S. taxpayer dollars should be spent.
0: So part of your job now as executive director of the Advisory Commission is to travel overseas and meet with diplomats and ambassadors in our embassies. Can you provide us with a recent example of an embassy that's excelling in public diplomacy?
1: Yeah, yeah. I love this question because I love talking about Estonia. uh, and, And I was fortunate enough to travel with the commission and the OMB in June of twenty sixteen to Ukraine, Estonia and Germany. And I have to say, Estonia just knocked our socks off. It's a it's a tiny operation when you look at it compared to the rest of our our footprint in Europe. I think we spend about half a million dollars in public diplomacy dollars in Estonia each year, which is relatively small when you look when you compare it to other countries in the region. It of course sits on the border with Russia and is a key European ally in any number of, of transatlantic contexts so it's an important space for us to be involved in what i was really impressed with in, in Estonia was was two things the first was that they had a clear sense of what their priorities were so everything boiled down to three policy priorities and the public affairs section there would only invest their time and their resources into programs and collaborations and endeavors that connected to those very specific tangible three policy priorities uh, and what's different about that is in a lot of embassies, we try to do too much. Very basically, we try to be everything to everyone. We try to check off any number of boxes so we can say we've we've worked on, on women's empowerment. We've worked on human rights issues. We've worked on environmental sustainability. We've worked on corporate responsibility. The challenge there is if we try to do everything, but we don't have the, the right people and enough resources. We really aren't able to focus in and hone in and make a difference on any one of those issues. In Estonia, we saw a focus produce real results second thing I would say about Estonia that was really impressive is every dollar spent from the public affairs section was leveraged to get an additional two or three dollars from local partners from the Estonian government from European governments uh, or other partners and so so it wasn't like the United States was investing in these projects on their own the embassy there had great relationships with other folks in country and leveraged those relationships to make sure that any any program or any group that we were trying to support, also got the support of other allied organizations. And, and what that does is it makes sure that these partners that we're investing investing in or these programs that we're investing in become far more sustainable because they're not just dependent on U.S. resources or U.S. government support. They have a number of active and interested partners they can reach out to, and we can see the results. You can just see uh, the public diplomacy investment they're having a far greater transformative impact on, on local populations, especially those that were closest to the Russian border. Uh, when compared to some of the other countries that that we visited.
0: So now that we know why Estonia is doing so well, what are some areas you think the US can improve in terms of our public diplomacy, whether this is the US in general or other embassies around the world?
1: Yeah, I and, and I I want to acknowledge too that public diplomacy is it's a global phenomena and unfortunately we're Fortunately, depending on how you look at it, I, I'm so engrossed in the American context in my current position that I'm going to go back to the American example and what I know. But but I don't I don't mean to, to indicate that it, it's something that only America owns. And in fact, far from it. And so that's sort of just the caveat that I wanted to, to mention. But I, I think I mention four things on this question. The first is we're not always very good at long-term strategic planning when it comes to public diplomacy. And this is in part due to structures at the State Department and the in the U.S. government that make it hard to make plans over the course of, say, four to five years, which is really where I think good strategic planning has to take place. you know, you, you got to look at, at what you want to achieve in five years and what are some benchmarks you can look at each six months and how to achieve that five-year goal. The problem with U.S. government public diplomacy programs is that we, we operate, of course, on a budget cycle that is dependent on Congress and the White House to come to some agreement on budget numbers, and as the current situation indicates, that doesn't always go as smoothly as we hope. But even if it does, Madison, even if Congress and the White House are working perfectly in sync and the budgeting process happens, you're still only able to plan 12 months out, best case scenario. And like I said, every book on strategic planning says you should really be thinking more in the five-year scheme of things. And so the budget cycle doesn't reflect really what we need to be able to do in terms of strategic planning. Over the long term, and that that creates problems. In addition to that, there's an internal State Department problem, which is the length of a, a tour of duty is either two or three years, depending on the country that you're going to, and sometimes even shorter than that. And so that also makes it hard to think about how to solve these big problems that we're facing over the course of five years or, or even longer. People. Uh, think about their tenure or trajectory in a particular position because that's what they're going to be evaluated on. So oftentimes that component encourages people to think about short-term accomplishments. And that's there's nothing wrong with that per se, but if it takes away from the long-term strategic planning, then I think we, we really need to look at some other options. The second piece I hinted at in my, my Estonia example, which is just getting folks to focus on what really matters and to not run around trying to uh, be everything to everyone. Focus on a handful, and I'm thinking two to three policy priorities in any given context and keep on focusing on those issues. If and it, This is a hard conversation to have within the embassy and within the State Department. We, we, we have to figure out what are the key issues that matter in a particular country or with a particular government or with a particular citizenry and then think about how we want to convey those policy issues over and over, using a variety of tools over the course of 12 or 24 months. Doing that piece is going to require a lot of cultural change at the State Department, but it's something that we're increasingly seeing as successful and increasingly seeing as something that's held up as a model for for success. Two more things I mentioned on improving uh, public diplomacy. One is just investing in our people give them the tools and the space they need to succeed Uh, over and over and over I hear that we are not investing in training sufficiently that public diplomacy practitioners are given some fairly basic training materials and instruction at the beginning of their career and that opportunities for for professional development over the course of their career are lacking and even when they do come up even when a, a course comes up it's for a week or two at a time and that's not if you look at the rest of government you typically look at people taking six months to a year for kind of mid-career professional development training for for new new skills acquisition. Those types of goals that we see in the military, we see in other federal government agencies, they take time. They they require pulling someone out of their their field position and, and getting them focused on a particular you know training objective for a long time. And we just don't have the the apparatus to do that. And, and part of it is there's just such a demand for for the people to be in the field to do the day-to-day work, it's really hard to pull them back and, and give them the time they need to get the training they need. But I think that's a crucial, crucial piece moving forward. And the last thing I'd mention is just find ways to incentivize risk-taking and long-term success. As I, I alluded to earlier, there's a structural system in place where you know people get promoted and within the State Department based on short-term achievements um, and short-term evaluations. And in that same system, there's not a lot of room to admit that you tried something and, and failed but learned something from it. No, There's no way to get credit for that. that's productive from a kind of classic benchmarking perspective. And that has to change. We have to create a mechanism for people literally to get awards and promoted for trying something new that, that was a calculated risk, not not a silly risk, not a bad decision, but a calculated risk. And And if it doesn't work out, as long as there's a lesson to be learned and that lesson is acknowledged and shared, that process is so crucial for us to to really innovate moving forward.
0: So as we look to the future of public diplomacy, what are the challenges and opportunities you see in the field and what trends should we be prepared for? What should we expect?
1: So it's uh, it's a great question. I think technology has to be at the top of the list and it, it it has to be at the top of the list now and probably will be for a while. I mean, technology is evolving so quickly the way people use technology and the way it's integrated into our lives is changing so quickly. And it's not, it's not necessarily a predictable process. It's and it's not one unidirectional, right? So technology gets incorporated into certain people's lives very differently uh, than others. And, and that changes quickly, especially when you start going internationally and look at different contexts. And so I think technology is sort of a wild card, but also one that requires a lot of expertise and a lot of flexibility to try to forecast trends and, and to remain nimble, because if you get something wrong and, and you invest in one platform and that platform ends up not being effective in the particular context you're operating in, we have to be able to pack it up and try something else pretty fast. And that is that is something that the State Department and, and almost any bureaucracy, any government bureaucracy is going to struggle with. Um, but it's something I think that the public diplomacy practitioners need to focus on and, and really maybe speaking more to your audiences, we need a lot of help with um, you know folks from outside of government. Are, are mapping these trends a lot more closely than we are. They're a lot more capable of seeing what's going on, kind of how these technologies are being adopted by folks on the ground. And so that expertise is, is really crucial. The way I see this playing out right now is with a focus on, on bots. And so the role of automated you know, computational propaganda, computational engagement, computational tools online that are mimicking real human beings, what we decide to do with those entities from a policy perspective, from a private sector perspective, will dramatically change how the internet evolves moving forward. And and I don't think anyone knows the right answer uh, about how you go about potentially regulating these entities if you wanted to, and I'm not suggesting that that's necessarily the solution. Though so there certainly are lots of people that are suggesting that, or how do you, how do you make it easier for people to identify if they're communicating with a robot versus a real human being. That's a, a, a piece of the technology puzzle that, from the perspective of public diplomacy, wasn't even on our radar, say, five years ago, but is obviously a crucial question to resolve moving forward.
0: So you mentioned bots and technology, so I just have to take this moment to promote your awesome work at the Advisory Commission and your one of your most recent reports can public diplomacy survive the internet? All about bots, echo chambers, and disinformation. So perhaps our listeners should be reading that for more information.
1: I, I appreciate the, the promotion, Madison. It is, um, <laughs> if I do say so myself, a terrific report, and I <laughs> uh, we're very proud of it. But uh, it, it's a great it's a great uh, introduction to first of all just understanding some of the technologies that I mentioned earlier, and sort of forecasting the direction that they they could go, um, but also Starting to talk about the threat that they pose for public diplomacy practitioners. Um, For example, like how do you stay credible in a world where you're competing with bots that don't really care about the issues you care about? Uh, But at the same time, some opportunities. And I want to mention that just because um, I don't want folks to think about bots online only as something that is a negative thing. I think that there are any number of ways that bots can be a productive force online. You know, for example, chatbots helping people answer questions about the visa application process It's probably something that's going to be a win-win. Those bots will probably answer questions more effectively in a more timely manner than an American foreign service officer would who's stationed in a foreign country. Um, It also opens up time for that foreign service officer to focus on more strategically challenging but very important issues. And so, you know, bots aren't necessarily always a bad thing. And I think we need to spend some more time thinking about how they can be a productive amplifier for our diplomatic activities abroad.
0: Well, thank you so much, Sean. We really appreciate you joining us. And, and as always, you're giving us your, your brilliant thoughts on public diplomacy.
1: Oh, you're, you're way too kind, but I appreciate the opportunity, Madison.
0: Special thanks to the USC Center on Public Diplomacy, specifically Lisa Rao, who made this possible, the USC Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism, And Caleb Trask, who provided our theme music, which comes from his EP, Across the Water. And to all of our listeners, thank you so much for joining us today.